and welcome to a special Kentucky Derby-themed horse betting version of the Odd Lot podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. My co-host Tracy Alloway is off today because she is so tired of all the episodes we've done about gambling. Just kidding, it didn't work with the schedule, but honestly, she might be happy to have missed this one. I, for one, am very excited about it because I love every time we talk about gambling or poker or betting or anything like that, which is uh, probably too frequently. Nonetheless, with this uh, marquee horse race coming up, we had to talk about it. And we have the perfect guest today. He's actually a repeat uh, guest on the Odd Lots podcast. He was one of the very early guests that we had when we talked about a different aspect of the, uh, the horse racing industry. Uh, I'm going to bring him right in. It is David Papadopoulos. He is an editor here at Bloomberg. A long time. Well, David, thank you for joining us. Is there, welcome, a word, is there a word for people who bet on horses? Is there a name uh, for them? Well, in my case, two words, degenerate gambler. <laughs> He's uh, a longtime degenerate gambler here right. at Bloomberg, yes. so his, his bona fides are uh, impeccable. Uh, I was, uh, my pedigree uh, as a gambler, depending on how you like to see it, was uh, is either, you know, I'm perfectly well-bred or horrifically well-bred. But I've been doing it, yeah, for a long time. Tell us more about that. You've been doing it your whole life and your father also bets on horse. Like, what's, yeah, what's so How'd you get into it? Yeah, my father was um, was hit with the bug, the gambling bug, the horse racing bug at a very young age. And actually when he, he was, born uh, and raised just outside of Providence, Rhode Island. And when he was ostensibly going to Brown University, he managed to somehow fight his way into Brown. He actually was studying across the street at Lincoln Downs Racetrack. Mm. And he spent many an afternoon there. Um, and of years later, of the five kids, we were five Papadopoulos, Papadopoulos, I was the only one who was struck with with the huh. with the horse racing bug, and as a, as a result of the fact that of the five, it was only passed on to me. I think I got a very powerful strand of it, and I've and I love it. I think it's the greatest game. It, many call it the greatest game. I'm a believer of that. It, it certainly, you know, you have to be prepared to have many days where total loss of capital is the is the end result. But it's a it's a great game. The last time you were on the show, we talked about pin hooking, which is the right. art of buying a horse for profit. So not betting on a horse per se, but going to an Correct. auction and buying a young horse and hoping it is worth more. Today, we're actually going to be talking about betting on horses. And you've brought with you some great stories of gamblers. Yeah. So, I mean, the game, one of the reasons why the game is what it is and as great as, as it is, uh, in my eyes, is is all all the, the, the history of it and the terrific characters, the Damon Runyon sort of characters that exist and, and the stories uh, that surround them. And as we lead up to the Derby here, I mean, you know, feels like a, it's a good opportunity to, to sort of go over some of those great old stories, but really with a particular eye on gambling and gambling coups and maybe some lessons, some gambling lessons, some investing lessons Great. that actually come out of them. I'm glad you said investing lessons. So at least we pretend to make it relevant well, to the Bloomberg audience, to the odd lots listeners. Well, I, I, I would even say that there are a lot of principles that are very, very similar. I mean, it's not for nothing that Warren Buffett started way back when. Uh, gambling on horses is one of the first things he did. And, and there are a great number, you know, value investing 
shares a lot in common with with gambling, with value betting. I mean, any self-respecting horse racing gambler is a value better. If you're not, you're a fool. I mean, if, well, if you're not, you, you've got absolutely no chance. So there are some similarities, Jeff. In the show Billions, the uh, hedge fund manager, Bobby Axelrod, says he got his start at the tracks. And, and there's a part where he's describing his history. And he's like, oh, and I realized that the stock market was the same thing. Or something it like is. And, and what I've learned, and listen, I'm not, I, I haven't made a fortune at the track, but my ROI is consistently proved over the years is you have to be mercilessly disciplined, right. unbelievably disciplined, and only bet when you truly feel like you have an ax or an edge. If not, you're just sort of showing up and throwing up and betting with the rest of the crowd and trying to figure out a race on the fly. It's a road. I've, I learned the hard way. It's a road to nowhere. And I learned that by marking to market every single bet I ever made and just sort of looking at returns wow. and sort of like realizing that unless you pick your spots and are incredibly disciplined, you got no shot. Before we get to the great coups of betting yep. on horses, that is a very the fact that you like keep track of all this and have that discipline. Why didn't you become like a trader or something? In <laughs> no, seriously, because it yeah. sounds like what a lot of investors and traders say. Did you ever think about going down that road? Well, not too seriously, just because I, when I got into journalism at a young age, I just sort of fell in love with yeah. journalism. That became my primary passion. But for me, I'm a very competitive sort. Where the Papadopoulos were a competitive group, and it's a way of keeping track, keeping score. I don't want to have just a vague sense of how I'm doing. Yeah. I want to know exactly how I'm doing. I know what the average gambler does, what his av- his or her average return is, and it means a lot to me. It's a little bit like your handicap yeah. in golf. I want to make sure, I want to do my darndest to try to beat them. So did I ever consider going to trading? Not really. I guess this is, this is, my, this is where trade. I get my trading fix. All right. I like that a lot. So let's talk about some great... Uh, some great moments in the game, the greatest game ever. Let's start with uh, something, a lesson, a story that you say is a good lesson in game theory. Yeah, it's it's a great story that goes back about five or six years, and it takes place in Miami, Florida. The racetrack there, Gulfstream Park, which is uh, controlled by the Stronic Group, sort of the, the Frank Stronic, a big magnet, and, he, and he, he's got, Frank Stronic has got a lot of creative ideas on how to bring more gamblers in. And one thing he did is he created what's called the Rainbow Six. The Rainbow Six is, is a riff on the Pick Six. Pick Six has existed forever. You have to pick the winner in six straight races. Very hard. But you can put as many different horses in. You can place bets on as many different horses as you want in any given race. You can bet five horses in the first and three in the second and two in the third and three in the fourth. Obviously, the more horses you add, the more expensive it gets. Right. You could alternatively go one horse, one horse, one horse, one horse, and it's very cheap. And if you get all six right, you get a very big payout. You may be the only person who gets the, the whole payout, or you may share it with a handful of people. If no one gets six of six, then those who get five of six get a consolation, and there is a carryover in the normal pick six to the next day, and the pot grows. The rainbow six is kind of was kind of a brilliant marketing tool. What he said is... The only way the picks, the rainbow six pays out is if there's only one single person who nails all six. If Joe and David and Topher, we all hit it and, you know, there are 25 of us who hit the pick six, 
the pool rolls over. It carries over and it continues to grow. We get some consolation prize, a few thousand bucks, or it could be, you know, a decent little prize, but it essentially grows and grows and grows. It's a great way of building drama and excitement. Invariably, what it leads to is on the last day of the racing meet, the thing is carried over and grown and grown and grown. Now, I'm not talking like lotto, you know, whatever, crazy numbers, but real money, right? Real money, you know, it'll grow and grow. And the last day of the meet, they mandatory have to pay out to everybody who hits it because there's no more racing after the season's over. So what invariably happens is it'll grow, say it's 6 million. It's grown to 6 million on the eve of, of the, um, the final day. And everybody, Joe puts together a syndicate with a hundred people and David puts together a syndicate with a hundred people. And we, we put together real money and we're going to bet on all sorts of crazy combinations to ensure that we get a piece of this, Big pool. Now, let's say there was $6 million of dead money that carried over. People will come in and throw an additional 15, 16 million at it for a shot at that, that dead money. So what this clever fellow did by the name of Dan Borislaw, who is also an investor. He was the, he was the founder of Magic Jack. And if you remember oh, yeah, yeah. Magic Jack. And, and Borislaw, who's since passed away, was a big, uh, he owned some horses and he loved to gamble. And he came up with this great idea which was rather than waiting for the last day of the meet where everyone's going to pile in, what if I hit, try to hit the rainbow six the day before his thinking being the following, everybody is focused and geared up and there's all this buzz and everyone's putting their time, effort, energy, and money into the last day of the meet because mandatory payout. So what if maybe it's possible that the pool's going to be really thin the day before and what if I just throw myself at this pool and throw a big number at it? And it turns out he invested in his tickets, $15,000. So not an insignificant amount of money. And maybe if, if, the, if the sequence gets a little funky, and it's in other words, it's not like the favorite, the favorite, the favorite, right. the favorite. Wins, you get a couple long shots here and there, and I'm the only fool who's got them. Maybe I take this whole thing down. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. He took down uh, on the eve of the last day of the meet, he took down $6.7 million. On $15,000. On a $15,000 bet. And again, what I love about it is there's a great contrarian thought to it. Now, of course, it's distinctly possible he still wasn't going to hit it, or he was going to hit something that was very favored heavy, and he would have shared it with a lot of people. Of course, it didn't have to work out. But, you know, it did, and it highlights, you know, him exploiting essentially a bit of a, 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 of a weakness in the market there where everybody was geared up on that last day. Well, it sounds like exactly, you said all good bettors are value investors and he saw value Absolutely. in the penultimate day when Absolutely. everybody said the, had their eyes on the prize of the last day, he realized essentially that that day was underpriced or underbet. And he, like. and he essentially, and he snuck one over on everybody. Now, the funny thing about- How upset were the people who had these big syndicates playing well, for the next day? I, I don't know, pop. but I'll say this, because as I was brushing up on the, I was remembering the episode and I was going through some old clips, the, the Gulfstream Park released a statement that after he hit it, it sounded like somebody had died in the family. Their statement was, we were all disheartened. It sounded <laughs> like we were all heartbroken that, that this guy stole our pool and we didn't get the huge, crazy last day of the meet. The funniest part about it though is I, I heard him interviewed this is back five years ago and it happened after he hit it and somebody said to him so well how you doing now as a gambler for life you doing well and he said ah, maybe I'm, maybe i'm about even <laughs> <laughs> and so man that, so he must have been down an awful lot of money before he hit that i love that one all right 
What is past posting? So past posting is anytime you manage to get off a bet illegally after the race has been run. There, of course, the movie The Sting, yeah. right, was largely based on this. And then there are many different past posting schemes, most of which have been squelched over time by the authorities. Some probably do or could perhaps exist here and there. But I think for the most part, as technology's advanced, they've gone away. But here's a case back in the Breeders' Cup in 2002. Now, the Breeders' Cup isn't quite the Kentucky Derby. It's run in the fall. It's not quite as, uh, as high profile, but it is the biggest racing event in the second half of the year. And it's, it's a sort of a championship day of racing. And there was this elaborate past posting scheme that became a big scandal. And these guys didn't get away with it. They initially walked away with $3 million, but they got nailed. And here was the past posting scheme. They had an insider at Autotote, which is the, the firm that handles all the betting who was able, it was also involved a picks, it was the pick six. Um, and it was on Breeders' Cup Day. And what they managed to do with this insider was after the first four legs of the pick six were run, their insider was able to go back in and tweak their bets. And so he- That makes it, it sounds like it would make it pretty easy to win. So yeah, it would. But here's the thing. They could only do it after the first four. You couldn't, the way the system was set, software was set up, you couldn't go in after six of six. You were able to go in after four of six. So they, he goes in and he tweaks race one to get it right, tweaks race two, tweaks race three, tweaks race four. And they've got one horse now selected in each of those four races. And then when they couldn't touch the last two, what do they do in the last two races? They bet on every horse and every horse. So the ticket obviously looks a little suspicious. So in the first they have a single. In the second, they go single. Third, they go single. Fourth, they go single. In the last two, they go all and all. It looks a little yeah. fishy. They Their cover was totally blown when in the in the last race, the sixth race, a 43 to one shot, Volponi wins. And it turns out, lo and behold, that they are the only fools or geniuses, cheating geniuses, who have up the pick six ticket. So now, Wait, which race was this? So the sixth. So oh, the final one. The final one. So what it did was, there's like, hey, Joe Weisenthal is the lone winner of the Breeders' Cup Pick Six. He just won three million dollars. And then that, in other words, if Joe Weisenthal had been, he'd been part of the crowd. Uh, he'd been one of seventy-five people. People wouldn't have really cared. He, he, he wouldn't have. People wouldn't have gone back and looked at the ticket. And so when it turns out, Joe was the lone winner. So they like, sort of got screwed by virtue of the fact that that was so unusual for there to be a sole winner. Because in the traditional Absolutely. pick six, unlike the rainbow six, multiple yeah. people could have won. Absolutely. But the fact that $3 million check to one winner right. is like, let's at least look at what they and, did. And, and, and That's the, interesting. The, the uniqueness, or the fact that they were a lone winner led the ticket to be examined. And then the ticket, again, and I, I refer to this as a $3 million heist with that left fingerprints everywhere. Yeah. Because it's a little... It's a little aesthetically odd to right. go single, 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 all, all. Like, no one ever would do that, right? It's pretty weird. Uh, you know, I like the contrast between the first example, which is this really clever value <laughs> right. bet, and this one is just, let's just go back and change the bet, which is about the opposite of clever and very crude. So they all did jail time. Uh, justice was served. The people who had five of six winners got their money. Oh. We're going, so... 
it all sort of ended happily enough. All right, what's another past posting story? Well, there's another past posting story from my father's youth, uh, and this may be slightly apocryphal, but this is um, this is one of sort of like a classic past posting scheme that used to exist, you know, before the technology got up to speed, and it was one that we, you know, took place in Lincoln Downs Racetrack, my father's home track, as he Where's understood that? it. It's uh, just outside of Providence. Or, okay, yeah. Or it no longer exists. It, it was a horse oh, right. track, you, yeah. and then it was a dog track, and now I don't even know what it is. I think it's nothing now. And it was a tiny little track where they used to run a lot of sprint races, short races. So in a short race, uh, the initial break out of the gate is very it's gotta, important. It's got to be everything. Or almost everything. It's, you know, it's... The break is always important in every race, but in a sprint race where, you know, the race is going to be over in a minute, it's a lot more important than a race that's two minutes long where, you know, if you get off a little bit slow, you know, you can, you can make it up. So this pass posting scheme took advantage of the fact that the track had a glitch where they allowed some bets to go in for a second or two after the gates were opened. And the, and, and the way that, you know, this group ran it was they had a guy right at the, I'm sorry, they had two guys right at the starting gate and two guys up at a betting window. And if when the gates opened, if one of the horses broke clearly ahead of the rest of the field, one guy would shout the number to his buddy right next to him who would flash with hand signals up to the guys up at the betting window. One guy at the betting window had a pair of binoculars who could see the numbers being flashed by hand. The other guy was at the window and telling the teller, he already had a series of $50 bets lined up. I think $50 was the maximum bet at the time. And he would just tell the teller to punch that $50 ticket, the two horse, and just punch it as many times as he could. Would it automatically... That, that would, sounds tough. It seems like there's very little time for the was. teller to so the punch, teller, punch it in. Right. So, you know, and, I, and I'm saying it was a second or two. I don't know the exact amount of time. But, but again, in, in, in the break, you can discern from that absolute first jump out. You can you can typically get a very good sense. Some horses will catch a flyer. Uh, some horses will will rear up. Some horses will 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 walk out of there. So you can get a pretty good sense. Maybe it was more than a second or two. I mean, it could have been a bit more, but they as the story goes, were managed to ride this for as long as they could until the authorities managed to uh, snuff it out. At this point, you cannot bet after the gates open anymore. The market will settle uh, nowadays after the gates open. But once that buzzer sounds and the gate opens, uh, the betting windows are closed. You use the word settle there in your last answer, which of course calls to mind markets and of course in prices and horse racing, the odds are fluctuating to the last second. Is there any sort of opportunity for like high frequency trading shenanigans, stuff like that? Yeah. Well, what happens, what has happened of late is as you've gotten more and more quant driven gamblers, professional quant driven gamblers with big payrolls in the game who come in and try to seize on what they determine to be market distortions or market inefficiencies late in late in the betting with a minute or so before the race starts, you will get, and I've seen this of late in the last few years, massive swings in prices in the last minute or so, which can be as a, as a, as a small time gambler like me, which be incredibly frustrating. I may bet on a horse with two minutes to go. And I myself always try to wait until the last few minutes to bet, but I may bet on a horse with two minutes to go at five to one. And then one of these quants comes in and puts down a five, 10, 15, 20, $30,000 bet, which in our pools is, would be a lot of money typically. Yeah. 
And that five to one, by the time the gates open, is now maybe three to one, maybe two to one. Huge swings in the last couple of minutes that make it, to quote Brad Katsuyama and Flash Boys a little bit, makes it hard to sort of trust what you're seeing on the screen. Yeah. It's very frustrating. It's a growing, absolutely a growing phenomenon in the game. All right, final moments here on the episode. Kentucky Derby coming up. Give me your sort of 60-second read on the race. Well, there's one real freak that everybody is super high on, a horse named Justify that's trained by the the horse freak whisperer, Bob Baffert, who trained American Pharaoh uh, to the Triple Crown a few years ago. He's going to be heavily bet, heavily hyped. He is absolutely the real deal and legit. I'm not knocking him. I'm just going to take a, a, a real stand against him. I think he's, he's, he's very green and inexperienced. And I suspect that unless he comes storming out of the gate perfectly, he's going to get himself in trouble and be in a situation he doesn't want to be in. And I, I have a hand, my eye on a handful of horses in the 10 to 15 to 20 to one range that I think are good candidates to upset him. So you, you're spreading your value bets around rather than uh, betting on the favorite. That's correct. I believe this is a vulnerable favorite, and anytime you think you have a vulnerable favorite, you want to take a stand against it. Is the Kentucky Derby, for an experienced better like yourself, a higher expected value race or lower with all the people who don't normally bet coming into it? Right. The fact that there's all the the dumb money in there is helpful. The problem is, because it's a 20-horse field, there's a random skew to it that makes it not very formful. And as a result, it's sometimes just hard to accept the results. Uh, as a gambler, like as someone who likes to try to always control as many variables as possible, it's really hard to control the variables. A 20-horse field is a stampede of horses. A right. typical field would have eight horses. So, Well, and unfortunately, even if you're really smart and do lots of good value bets, you can't eat ex- positive expected value if you don't win. This is true. David Papadopoulos, I want to just talk with you for the next few hours, but we have to wrap it up there. We'll do another horse episode next year for next year's Kentucky Derby. Thank you for joining the Odd Lots podcast. This has been another episode of Odd Lots. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. You can follow David Papadopoulos on Twitter at David El Greco. You can follow my co-host, Tracy Alloway, who wasn't here this week at Tracy Alloway. And you should also please follow our producer, Topher Forges at Forges T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.